Good afternoon and welcome to Rounding the Earth. It is a warmer day in Texas. Uh, hopefully it's comfortable where you are. Um, today we have a special guest joining us. Uh, he is uh, an author of a best-selling book, uh, Overcoming the COVID Darkness. And we have had uh, his, his partner in crime, uh, Dr. Brian Tyson, on with us before, but I'd like to welcome Dr. George Farid to Rounding the Earth. Hi, George. How are you? Hi, Matthew. Thank you. And uh, you, it should be mentioned, of course, that you're a co-author uh, and uh, co contributed a tremendously important chapter of the statistical analysis and interpretation of the findings that are the cornerstone of, uh, of the work we, we did during the pandemic. So it's a, it's very really glad a, to help. You know, it was very important help that was provided and much appreciated and, um, has a big impact on the readers of the book. Well, um, you, you have provided important help to uh, so many thousands of people, and we're going to get to that. Um, but uh, before we get to that, I would like for you to um, tell tell the audience about yourself. Uh, you, you, uh, you've you been a doctor for how long now? It's, uh, it seems like forever. It's uh, 54 years. Wow. <clears throat> and it's... Um, uh, it's been a maverick. I'm a maverick in, in, in medicine. I, I trained in, in Boston at Harvard and then at, um, uh, at the NIH, overlapping a bit with uh, Anthony Fauci in the NIAID. And I elected to go back to Harvard from there uh, at, when I was in the public health service at the, um, during the Vietnam War. And I, we was at the inception of the recombinant DNA uh, field. Uh, back in those days in the in the 70s and 80s and <clears throat> uh, and so I, I was inspired by all these wonderful amazing people that were contributing to this and I completed some of my medical training and then was on the faculty at Harvard to carry out um, uh, tumor virus research and teaching medical students not long after I just had graduated from there and I then went on to UCLA uh, School of Medicine on the faculty in microbiology and immunology. And I uh, then after 20 years of work in academia and, and biotechnology, I uh, made the great decision to come to the Imperial Valley of California, an underserved area, to try to make a difference in clinical medicine as a real practicing doctor in the trenches. And that, that's um, where I've been and plan to stay through the next, hopefully, 10 or 15 more years of clinical practice if, um, if the California Medical Board agrees with, um, with that, it doesn't throw in a monkey wrench. But regardless, um, I'm, that's, that's my background. It's just a, a real family rural doctor uh, do it covering uh, the whole scope of medical practice and uh, wound care is an area that I've um, devoted myself to also, and I do HIV work. Uh, I set up the HIV services here 25, 28 years ago, and I, I still see the HIV, many of the HIV patients. And so I, I developed a real expertise in, in, in infectious diseases for virus infections, particularly uh, HIV. And I, I do inpatient work. I did inpatient hospitalist work for um, the major part of the pandemic. And I, so I saw both aspects of um, 
the outpatient and inpatient aspects of, of COVID-19 disease. And, and I join forces with Brian Tyson, as, you, as you've mentioned already, Matthew, and we adopted the, came independently with the same protocol for providing an antiviral for treatment or a cocktail, basically, a protocol combination of agents. And that, that proved so successful for us that we wrote the book uh, to try to get the word out as well as try to speak in many venues around the world and around the United States on the importance of early treatment. And that's, um, that's where I'm at and where my where I stand at this time. It's still a big proponent of early treatment uh, using combinations of the agents, just like we do in HIV and other viral infections. And we've done that so successfully. Vaccines were never effective for HIV or for mutable viruses. And they, uh, and we're dealing now with um, breakthrough infections and people having adverse reactions to vaccines, but, and I've had three or four patients who died after the mRNA vaccines, unfortunately. I'm sorry to hear that. Well, you've brought up an, a number of very important topics and, and we'll come back to some of them. Um, on, on a lighter note, I have a question for you. Were you a tennis player? I, I was. Uh, my family was a <clears throat> very much a, uh, uh, a, a enthralled and uh, involved with the tennis world and that my father who inspired me to go into medicine who was a, a missionary doctor but in addition a big an early uh, sports medicine doctor had um, great friends who were champions in tennis and he subsequently or during my early years was the team physician for the u.s davis cup tennis team and I would join him on those experiences. But in addition, while I was growing up, we had in our home and in his office, people like Don Budge, a legendary Grand Slam champion from the old days of the 30s, and and Jack Kramer, and then Rod Laver, and um, all the Poncho Gonzalez, all these great players would come to him for help in L.A., and I'm old enough to know who Rod Laver was. Yeah. And so in, in any case, and then Arthur Ashe. And uh, so I, I took up tennis as my sport, a major sport. And I played a tennis in college in addition to being a pre-med student at Berkeley. And, and then I took over for my father as the team physician for the U.S. Davis Cup tennis team in the 1990s. And we had... Uh, great teams with legendary players of the United States, Andre Agassi, Pete Sampras, Jim Courier, Michael Chang, Todd Martin, many, many others. And so I got to know them well on these trips to their matches where I would, my goal was to prevent any illness that would affect their play and help them deal with any musculoskeletal problems to uh, ensure that they succeeded in the matches. And we, we did well in those years. Yeah, my memory, the best matches for me were me memorable. In 1995, we were in the finals of the Davis Cup and we were in Moscow and Pete Sampras collapsed after a heroic match in a um, great deal of uh, dehydration and muscle cramping. And we rehydrated him and he and treated his uh, muscle cramps and he went on to win the next two matches in, in Moscow in a very um, heated uh, environment there. 
<clears throat> the winning the Davis Cup. But those are the years past, and uh, they're nice memories to have had. That's fantastic. Um, I, I played tennis just a little bit growing up. I uh, had a couple of years where I really enjoyed it, and, and uh, it was Michael Chang that I enjoyed watching come up because I watched live his big match against Devon Lindell. Uh, yes. that, that one where Lindell had won, had lost only like four matches in like months and months. And, and Michael Chang took him to five sets. And, uh, yeah, that, that's, that's the greatest tennis game I've ever watched. Yeah. I saw <laughs> many, I saw many of his matches on the sidelines when he was on the Davis cup. Team. I mean, I should have mentioned him in addition to that other. Oh, you, you did. You did. You mentioned him. Oh, I um, did. Michael, I, I, yeah, I, I very wonderful good. family and, and individual. He's, I still get Christmas cards from him, actually, uh, uh, which I appreciate. That's wonderful. Um, well, it, it, I, I brought that up because I, I knew that you had been doctor for the Davis Cup team, but uh, I didn't realize how long that story stretched back. I didn't realize that your father had had been there before you and, yes. um, and that you had uh, uh, been inspired through him and, and worked with that all the way. Um, but you, you've had a career. It, it, have you ever seen any of the Star Trek television series? I, I have, but not recently, but I've, I've enjoyed them in the past. Did, did you ever see the one called Deep Space Nine? No, I haven't. No, I'll, I'll okay. try to take a watch it. There's a character in that show that I believe that they stole from your life. <laughs> There's a doctor named Julian Bashir. And uh, and he's um, you know he's he's a bit of a sports athlete you know he likes to to go play um, you know, kind of a racquetball type game but he is he's the uh, frontier doctor of the Star Trek universe really and yeah. uh, and and I think that's that's the Doctor Fareed of that universe <laughs> and they they very they may very well have patterned that character after you so, um, but but you're you know we're we're here to discuss um you know a little bit more serious topic and. Uh, and I've been surprised. I, I'm, I'm just going to say this. I've been surprised not to have seen your interviews get pushed around a little bit more lately because you were so, you know, you and Dr. Tyson were so right on the money. Um, at this point, you, the two of you have seen over 20,000 COVID patients between us. Yes. <clears throat> yes, absolutely. And, and the book says 7,000. Yeah, but uh, th th this was after um, the first two seasons. Uh, right. And then by the time the book was published, there had been three seasons that had been COVID seasons. But you've now seen uh, over 20,000 patients. And what proportion of those received early treatment? It fr From the time when I did the statistics, it looked like about 90%. Yeah, I or, think or what it, you would call early treatment. Right, right. And it from... Uh that, that 20,000, it, it's still in that high percentage, 85 to 90%. And that we, we felt that our treatment was safe and well tolerated and, and, and so effective that it would be un, uh, preferable to treat in order to prevent long COVID and prevent a, a chance that the individual most vulnerable patients or high risk patients particularly would have a potential for deterioration and uh, hospitalization. The whole goal was to prevent hospitalization and to lead to uh, rapid cessation of symptoms and and uh, elimination of, of the uh, replicating virus as soon as possible to prevent uh, deleterious effects on other organs of the body.
So, so approximately 18, 19,000 patients yes. treated early. Um, none of them died. No. Yeah. Not, not a single one. <clears throat> no. Mm -hmm. and, and maybe what, half a dozen hospitalizations? Probably in that range. Yeah. So few it's, um, and the, those were incompletely treated patients generally, or patients that came in late, later with more symptoms. Okay. So uh, here's a question out of, out of the tree. So, so the protocol that you use, it's uh, it's primarily hydroxychloroquine, uh, an antibiotic, a macrolide, uh, usually azithromycin. That's right. Or doxycycline, which or is doxycycline. the other uh, agent that is, has multiple beneficial effects beyond just uh, its antimicrobial action. It, they have weak antiviral action and anti-inflammatory action. And, and then um, zinc and vitamins. Zinc and vitamin D in particular, and also a, a, an anticoagulant if needed, aspirin or even more potent anticoagulants if there is a risk for thrombosis. And then, and then from there, and, and this already describes, some of this already describes treating the symptoms, but then from there, you just focus on the patient and whatever they need. Yeah, exactly. If, if they need a steroid, uh, you give them a steroid. Oh yeah. Yes. Or they and in an inhaled steroid generally would such as uh, budesonide via nebulization uh, or uh, dexamethasone or dexamethasone orally. And you guys have used monoclonal antibodies at least a bit. If I yeah, yeah, we used more than a bit actually when they became available, and as as new agents became uh, looked worth very important and helpful, we would incorporate them into the protocol, and and broaden it to include uh, the monoclonal antibodies, and, and while they were still effective for the variants, and also. Uh, now, more recently, Paxlovid can be is very compatible with hydroxychloroquine or um, uh, Molnupiravir um, from uh, from Merck. So the, those uh, we've always uh, maintained a approach of using multiple agents that synergize in different ways, such as our agents like hydroxychloroquine or and subsequent later on ivermectin uh, have. Uh, effects on the host cell more so than they do directly on the virus. And so they're, they're agnostic, they're broad spectrum. They actually are beneficial for other RNA virus infections. And uh, in contrast, Paxlovid or the monoclonal antibodies or Molnupiravir are virus specific and the virus can mutate to uh, become resistant to those. And so by using a combination, just as we have in HIV and seen so effective for HIV, uh, the effects of the viral ability to resist are suppressed very effectively. And so that's, that's still, that is the, is the, the substance or the main um, uh, aspect of our treatment is to use a combination of agents that are safe and well tolerated. But even before some of those were available, like one thing that I said when I wrote up the analysis was, you know, we don't really have enough data to know whether or not ivermectin, you know, worked for, at least from this, from the, the first, you know, uh, 4,000 patients, there wasn't, there wasn't enough data on ivermectin for me to, to really yeah, be able to yeah. say, 
you know, as a, as a statistician. Um, other people have asked me about, uh, you know, other things in the protocol, and I wasn't sure how far it had been updated um, since uh, I would worked with you guys. But um, it, one thing that, that's good and both difficult is the treatment was so good that even without the addition of some of these later things, exactly, you know, it, 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 in a sense, it, it almost doesn't matter whether or not molnupiravir works because you already had a treatment protocol that was working. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Very well stated. And, th and that, that actually was uh, evident from the work that DDA Raul and in Mar Marseille was doing with thousands of patients already by March and April of 2020. And, and, and he was an expert on hydroxychloroquine for infectious diseases and knew uh, the blood uh, level that was needed to be achieved and how to achieve that with oral dosing of, in safe range of, of the medication, how well tolerated it, it could be in this range of giving initially 600 or 800 milligram loading dose and then 400 or 600 milligrams daily for a short period of time. Patients that he had studied had been on 600 milligrams for a year without problems. And right. you need to get a certain threshold dose to be able to ensure that it's effective at the nasopharynx and in the in the respiratory system to, to inhibit the uh, uh, the coronavirus multiplication. And it, it was by seeing his work, seeing what they were doing in South Korea with hydroxychloroquine in February of 2020, and looking back into the early 20s, uh, when uh, the studies were being done with hydroxychloroquine for SARS-CoV-1 uh, and MERS, and in vitro studies showing how these uh, HCQ or hydroxychloroquine uh, works in part uh, published, uh, provided very good uh, support for what we were providing our patients. And we, uh, we just, we needed to do something that was more than just watch them and s symptomatic treatment at that early time and throughout the first two years of the pandemic. Yeah, and, and I'm gonna tell you, um, uh, watching Dr. Rilt's work um, is, is what got me a little bit more involved in doing the research myself. And I'll tell you why. Um, you know, on Facebook, I would see people, you know, post about pandemic stuff and different treatments and how things were going. And one of the things that I noticed, because I, I had done a little bit more legwork than most people, I had gotten on the phone and called doctors I knew uh, clients that I'd had previously who were doctors, which I had a, a pretty solid list uh, of those people. Um, so, you know, I, I'd call different people. I knew that, that, that doctors were treating with hydroxychloroquine and I followed uh, Dr. Ayalt's work. But what I saw on my media stream was news articles continued to be written into May of 2020 who would refer to Raul uh, in a denigrating way and refer to his one small study. Hmm. And what it, when I started writing was when I realized that I needed to explain to people that by May, he had seen 4,000 patients. That in March, he published a study with 26 individuals. But by May, he had seen 4,000 patients. Yes, exactly. That and, and so the press wasn't really giving that uh, a fair look. 
Um, but I have a, I have uh, somebody's offered a question from one of our one of the places that we stream. Uh, they say, could Dr. Fareed discuss at what threshold of symptoms he would begin treatment, or did he treat upon positive test only? And I think I know the answer to that, but I'm going to throw that to you. Well, that's an excellent question, and it, it's um, there's a very low threshold for treatment uh, from the uh, because you, the the condition can progress uh, when you're from that point that you're seeing an individual if they're only mildly symptomatic. That most often uh, we would be starting treatment with a patient uh, showing signs of the respiratory infection with. Uh, headache, uh, fever, sore throat, body aches and pains. Uh, so it'd be the initial of the uh, phases of the flu illness, the flu condition. And we would, uh, if I wouldn't uh, be adverse to treating it with, with, with a patient with a positive test uh, and allowing them to indicating that they could stop the treatment within a day or two if they're completely recovered. So yeah, and, and a lot of people don't know this, but uh, maybe five, six months ago, the Harvard School of Public Health came out with a meta-analysis on prophylactic treatment with hydroxychloroquine. And while while it was that that not all of those studies reached, or maybe none of them reached statistical significance on their own, that when you looked at them as a group, the Harvard School of Public Health study said. Uh, hydroxychloroquine does appear to be an effective prophylactic treatment. Mm -hmm. And if that is, and first of all, people should know that because hydroxychloroquine did get panned so hard, but you know, that, that is, you know, one of the world's most, you know, elite. And I, I, I sort of, I, I, in a sense, I hate that word because, you know, in anywhere people, you know, have their own thinking and make their own decisions. Right. Um, but, but it is the case that the Harvard school of public medicine published this study saying this works as a prophylactic. So if it works as a prophylactic, then the odds are very high that it works because it has an antiviral yes. effect. Yes. And if it has an antiviral effect, then it probably also works for early treatment. Exactly. Exactly. Very well stated. You know, we uh, have um, found that the... Um, uh, the the HCQ hydroxychloroquine guy. We were guided by Raoul, and we were guided by Vladimir Zelenko, and particularly Vlad. Uh, I mean Zev Zelenko, uh, and I, it was uh, for me in my career. He is the most important doctor I've ever known, uh, and it, it late in my career, as it, it is, I've known a lot of doctors over the years, and he he allowed me to join forces with them to be aligned on this approach with zinc and and that um even though zinc uh, ionophore action of hcq is uh only part of how it, it it's it carries out its antiviral action it is an important uh feature of the protocol that brian and i utilized along with the dosing that we used and uh, it's so it's very important in the prophylaxis that the individual have an adequate zinc level systemically and also uh, have an adequate vitamin D level. Yeah, right. Is, uh, and for anybody who doesn't know this, um, in, in the collection of statistics about who was hurt most from COVID, um, one of the things that you see is 
is substantial inadequacy of different vitamins and zinc. Um, uh, you know, once uh, people's vitamin D levels reach a certain level, going below uh, the, the OHD, the the uh, hormonal uh, vitamin D, OHD 25, if that goes below about 25, for those patients, COVID seems to be much worse. And in fact, uh, almost nobody with 30 or above and like, you know, I, I'm, I'm in the high 60s, I think, when I, I, I got tested in 2021 just to see what my blood chemistry looked like. But, you know, so I, I'm not very at risk. So the odds are if I took hydroxychloroquine, I would have enough zinc in my system to be just fine. But whose zinc helps probably are those people who, um, who are of advanced age uh, or whose immune systems are otherwise not fully functioning properly. Do I have that right? Oh, that's correct. And and it is uh, zinc is a inhibitor of the polymerase, the RNA polymerase, or the replicase for RNA viruses and particularly Corona uh, COVID nineteen. And so it's uh, it has to be intracellular for that to take place. And the agents like hydroxychloroquine and even vitamin D acts somewhat as a ionophore for zinc. To bring it, uh, ionophore means a agent that uh, that draws the ion, the zinc, intracellular through the cell membrane. It's um, so that that's um, it's important to appreciate that. And hydroxychloroquine is a drug that had been used for many things before. A lot of people um, uh, talked about it. Uh, they would refer to it as an anti-malarial, which is, of course, the the reason it was discovered initially, or the drug that it was derived from. Uh, hydroxychloroquine is is a more purified form, or a specifically purified form of uh, something called quinine that was originally from the bark of a, a tree in South America, and now they're mostly grown in India, if I understand correctly. But uh, but uh, hydroxychloroquine had been used to treat a pretty broad array of conditions, uh, including um, uh, autoimmune conditions. And yeah. there, do, there do appear to be autoimmune features, uh, perhaps because of the spike protein, but more than usual uh, with these infections. And and um, Raoult specifically knew hydroxychloroquine well because he had stopped uh, bacterial infections using hydroxychloroquine. Uh, no, it's definitely a multifunctional meta agent. It may be the most... Uh, versatile of, of um, naturally derived uh, molecules or agents for, for, for human health or human illnesses. And it, it actually has a, an anti-HIV action uh, and probably in conjunction with the zinc uh, um, ionophore or its effect on what's called the sigma uh, alpha, uh, the sigma one receptor, which is a receptor that in the cell of the uh, of all of our uh, cells of our body, it, there it's a receptor that is important in folding proteins, and viral proteins have to be folded properly for the virus to be assembled. But there and there are other actions, and it, it actually uh, has a anti-diabetic action. For it, it's it's just a it's a it's generic. Uh, there's no uh, no no profit in it. And so there's no reason for the pharmaceutical industry and the medical, I guess, establishment to um, to 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 actually investigate and uh, and and feature these 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 aspects. It was 
I would have never guessed that it would be the cornerstone of our COVID treatment until based upon my education in, uh, in, in, in clinical medicine. Well, one thing that, that all of this did for me was it caused me to take, um, you know, a second look at uh, naturopathic medicine and, and other alternative forms of medicine. And I hate using that phrase. Uh, simply because I feel like, you know, alternative medicine and allopathic medicine would do better to sort of be combined into one sphere and for there to be more scientific studies on, you know, various remedies, various herbal remedies, you know, teas, things like that. And once I had discovered the, um, the antiviral action of zinc, uh, I collected a list of known zinc ionophores. Some of that, I believe, came initially from Dr. Raoul. Um, I, I don't know for sure, or, you know, maybe he was uh, retweeting something that somebody else uh, brought to him. But um, it, one, one thing that I noticed was that green tea was very high on that list. Mm -hmm. So people who are living in a place where they can't get hydroxychloroquine, now hydroxychloroquine may have some additional benefits like being able to work in these pathways and, and perhaps even being able to restore balance um, to... Um, you know, if you have any bacterial issues. Um, but, you know, if, if you can get green tea or perhaps a, a number of other things that are sometimes uh, poo-pooed as merely being Eastern medicine or merely being naturopathic medicine, um, there, at, there is actually some research in the literature that shows that it has positive benefits. Have, have you seen this? Uh, I have. I, I, I think that Vlad uh, or Zev Zelenko uh, did a lot of um, research on ionophores too. Did he? Uh, yes. And, <clears throat> and he developed prophylactic regimens that were used uh, homeo-naturopathic uh, uh, components like quercetin or uh, EGCG and, uh, that are very potent ionophores for zinc as an alternative if one wasn't able to get a uh, prescription for hydroxychloroquine. So, and one of the things, uh, when I first started studying the data that you and Dr. Fareed, uh, and, and Dr. Fareed had um, his clinics, he has, he had five clinics. Wait, Dr. Tyson, you said my name. Uh, excuse me, excuse me, Dr. Tyson's five clinics. Uh, he, he had ordered um, uh, the people, you know, running the, the clinics to keep track of all the, the patients in, his, in spreadsheets. And then I got those spreadsheets and I started working on the data. And in my mind, in my mind, I was, you know, testing to see if hydroxychloroquine had an effect, but that wasn't, that's not really the correct way to look at it. Um, one thing that I gradually grew to understand over time was that um, the majority of the people who die from COVID-19 die specifically from pneumonia. And it's, I think that it's like right at 50% in the national statistics, but in my opinion, if there are probably a certain amount of false positives, and those are probably not pneumonia cases or people who, you know, fell off a ladder and then tested positive and they, you know, included that in COVID statistics. Um, once you, once you skim those out of the top, the majority, you know, maybe, maybe 60, 70, possibly even higher percent of people who die from COVID-19 seem to die from pneumonia specifically. So, you know, when, you know, looking at the treatment protocol, uh, the antibiotic is just crucially important. It, it is antibiotics that have always kept pneumonia at bay. Yeah. And the U.S. has never seen as high numbers 
of pneumonia deaths as we have during the pandemic era. Well, I, 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 that's a very good point, Matthew. I think that the the the, the pneumonia was just a um, global diagnosis for respiratory failure and for um, the 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 cytokine storm, the the inflammatory process occurring to just damage the the respiratory functions uh, and then lead to a a appearance of an, of pneumonia basically or uh, the inability to get proper oxygen transport through the lungs so for somebody who reaches that stage of illness for how many days does that cytokine storming tend to last it 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 can last for weeks and uh it it can be very um uh, rapid but generally it would be uh languishing it would be uh it would be over many many days and uh prolong there was a very uh sad situation to see that uh presence uh, and that's what i saw when i was working as a hospitalist during the pandemic and it i i found that if any me the measures that i wanted to use were not being uh, uh, approved basically for the uh, inpatients and so they um they it was in that regard made it all the more important to prevent patients from being hospitalized so um here's a question that may be a little bit more speculative one of the strange things about this pandemic is that influenza seemed to disappear it, it, when you look at the cdc's charts mm -hmm. when you look at the who's uh you know uh charts and and you see the testing results you know seventeen thousand people tested this week one positive test which which it, it just seems bizarre now a lot of people at the very beginning there was a conspiracy theory that rolled around where people said oh well there there you know all of this is really just the flu influenza and i don't i don't believe that um i i i you know do believe that there was a virus uh a coronavirus that was infecting people um but i i've sort of wondered over time is it possible that there was also co-infection with an influenza virus that was not one that was being tested for is that possible <clears throat> yeah, it, that is possible, Matthew, but it's um, not, in my opinion, too likely. I, I think that the the COVID-19 was so infectious and so aggressive and toxic with the spike, um, its effects of the, particularly the spike protein, uh, eliciting so much inflammation and, uh, and vascular injury that uh, that's something we don't see with influenza, thank goodness. And so we, we see more... Uh, co-infections during the last uh, wave uh, when there's less uh, uh, aggressive aggressivity of the of the variants that are there for uh, evolved from from uh, in the in the the wave for uh, COVID-19. And you can tell um, you know from your observation of a patient uh, if there is co-infection Oh, we, you can't really tell until you test. And we generally will do a, um, a combination uh, PCR for flu uh, strains as well as COVID-19 and uh, RSV or respiratory syncytial virus. 
and frequently now we're seeing individual infections with those viruses, but there are uh, many cases of co-infection. And they then you you can add in Tamiflu and uh, for the anti uh, anti flu virus uh, treatment in addition. But the uh, we felt and uh, still feel that our uh, uh, protocol ha is broad spectrum and we feel very comfortable with treating patients before we get these results in because it uh, would impact favorably a flu infection or even RSV. Infection. Right. And, and, and a lot of people may not know this, but historically, and you have to dig this stuff up, um, but historically, if you go back to the Russian flu from the late 19th century or the Spanish flu from the early 20th century, there were doctors who treated patients with quinine, or with, uh, with medicines that they concocted that included quinine, but where quinine was probably the active agent. Mm -hmm. And they had great success, or at least they reported great success treating patients that way. So there is at least some historical evidence that, that hydroxychloroquine um, was a good flu inhibitor that, that we just sort of, it, you know, that information was sort of lost to history and nobody perhaps was motivated, as you said, there's not much money in it. Uh, nobody was motivated to pick up that ball and give it a good study until many decades later when we ran into something like this. Yes. But to the degree that there were co-infections, um, this kitchen sink protocol that, uh, that you and Dr. Tyson and Dr. Zelenko um, all, all advocated and put together and used with your patients, um, but we, we weren't the only ones. There were many others around the country. And, and, and many others. And many, yeah, I, I, don't mean, they, I don't mean to leave anyone out. I just, I think I just mean to say that, doctors that it like, would be broad spectrum. Yeah, exactly. Hey, by the way, I'd like to uh, compliment you on the Substack article you, you wrote of um, the history of hydroxychloroquine and quinine and and the conchola or whatever the name of the tree is for from which the bark they they were extracted from. Yeah, I don't know how to say it either. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have to look at it written out, but uh, you, you you should put a link to your to that article uh, for for people that are are listening. If if uh, if you don't mind, Matthew. Oh, yeah, and you know what? I actually I republished that article about a week and a half ago. Oh, you did? Oh, great. I did. I did. I, I decided to you know maybe like twice a week to repost the old articles from when I had. You know, back then I had 200 readers. Um, now it's about 30,000. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, I, I, I realized that and I, I, I thought, uh, you know, I'm going to post some of these old ones, not all of them, you know, some of them um, um, we've sort of moved past, you know, into a more complete understanding of sure. things. So I'm not reposting all of them, but that was the first one that I reposted. Oh, so good. Good. Well, I, 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 that. I give you a tremendous amount of praise for that. Uh, your writing is so eloquent and uh it's very thorough oh thank you i appreciate it um well so moving forward now with with the pandemic you mentioned that we are now seeing other viruses like rsv now uh since you and dr tyson are still giving patients hydroxychloroquine and antibiotics um are you seeing that are uh, are you seeing um uh, those viruses also be affected by those treatments. Yeah, you know, I, on, with regard to what we're doing, it, it's uh, we're somewhat we're definitely impacted by the California Medical Board and by the um, investigations that they've 
put in place that such that uh, we we need to adhere to the what's um, <clears throat> approved or recommended in the in 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 California in particular and by the agency. So uh, the other aspect is that. Uh, so we're not. Uh, I I I have no hesitancy treating with HCQ in in our cocktail along with, uh, if it's available, ivermectin. However, um, when it's appropriate to use a specific uh, additional antiviral uh, for flu, for instance, Tamiflu would be good to incorporate. Or in in the case of uh, for COVID, adding in Paxlovid or uh, or mononupiravir and. It, some pharmacies still will not uh, uh, dispense the the other agents, the ones we originally have found so effective. And at least we're giving agents that do have antiviral action. We we don't see a lot of RSV. We don't see a lot of symptomatic severe RSV in the adults. And so it's mo mostly the pediatricians that are dealing with the with those uh, cases, and and they aren't using our protocol as far as I know. So what, what is going on now with the, with the medical boards? Are you under fire specifically? Well, yes. Uh, but we'll see if, uh, if they, I have to have an interview, Brian had an interview, uh, and it's uh, going to be, uh, up to the board to determine if they want to suspend us or do something else. You haven't sure. heard, and hopefully they'll just drop it. And there was an injunction on that, um, uh, the bill that was approved by, uh, signed by Newsom, on mis um, misinformation. So that's there's that's under injunction and uh, is enjoined. So we, uh, in principle, that's uh, that's what they're looking at, though. Basically. So you're still able to speak with me right now. <laughs> I'm, my lawyer would say I shouldn't be, but I'm happy to do so, Matthew. Well, thank you. Um, and 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 I know that uh, that before those clampdowns, uh, you and Dr. Tyson were speaking everywhere for a while in 2021, in, in particular. Yes. Um, it, it, it felt like I, I saw you two, um, at least one of you, uh, uh, giving an interview or speaking every week, um, whether it was. Uh, on a podcast or with uh, a news reporter or at a city council meeting. So, you know, thank you for taking all of that, that time. Yes. Not um, at all. No, and, you know, I, I, I think that uh, it, I, I've been surprised a little bit recently not to have seen, you know, more of that reposted, but uh, I'm going to see if I can, you know, push that as a trend myself or maybe uh, make this video, uh, <laughs> um, you know, the, and present this to a few more people that might have might not have seen um, your work before. But uh, you know, twenty thousand patients is such a an enormous number. Um, that is such an enormous number. And some of the criticisms uh, of of the initial work that you did, uh, like from um, Doctor uh, John Ioannidis, who is a very smart man, um, but uh, in in email exchanges with him, he said, "Well." I only, you know, I, I think that the the actual fatality rate in their pool of patients, and he hadn't seen the data, but I think, um, but he said, you know, in this pool of patients, it, it should have been zero to three. You know, there's there's not enough, you know, there's not enough statistical powering here. But if he believed that, then at this point, he must think that the number of deaths would have been, you know, as high as 20 or something like that, at which point um, zero deaths still seems like, I mean, that's, you know, if it's zero versus 20, 
if, if the expectation would have been as low as 20, which I just don't believe, um, that would achieve statistical significance. In fact, if it were zero versus 10, that would achieve statistical significance. Yes. If it were zero versus 64, or uh, sorry, six, um, that would achieve statistical significance. So we're, we're way beyond that point where even the people who, who want to find a way to, um, you know, look at the, the pool of patients and say, no, you know, I, and, and he never did. He never, and I invited him to, I invited him to look at the statistics. Yeah, that with was me. great that you did that. I, I don't know if he gives credence to the work that Harvey Reich has done and others in meta-analyses of uh, hundreds of thousands of, of patients that have been treated with hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin, where the results are so favorable in nationwide studies that it's it, it, 20,000 is a significant number, but there are now four or 500,000 uh, positive results. Uh, and we uh, actually, our book that um, you showed now, we've published in German uh, and was popular in Germany. The title is COVID-19 Treatable, uh, Curable Since uh, 2020. And uh, how, many, how many German copies have been sold? There were 10,000, I believe. Eight or ten. Wow. So it, we didn't get a lot of uh, uh, coverage by the uh, uh, major um, news news uh, to get it uh, more visible. But hopefully, our Spanish version of the book uh, uh, now is re retitled um, uh, "COVID nineteen Treatable and Curable Since 2020." So it's more than just overcoming the COVID darkness, and it it's it's important to say what was what, what, what the truth is and it was treatable and curable and that's what really makes me so sad that um that it that was the case and not um acted upon to um, prevent all the suffering that i saw i don't see that so much anymore i think it, it just occurred to me now I, i'm out of the loop um how many copies of this book have been sold i think around forty thousand or more. So it's, a, it, again, without any uh, major... Um, without any publicity. Yeah, publicity. Uh, it's just our own efforts that you're and mine and Brian's and our uh, publisher, um, Howard Van Ness, Let's Write Books uh, Incorporated. So we're very proud of it. And we will come out with a second edition at some point with updating that the uh, the new the and it's going to be written out in Slovenian <laughs> Slovenian language uh, soon but it's nice to get it in other languages and we we hope to help spread the information through the through Latin America and in Spanish-speaking countries so that will help people there in those places well uh, another viewer asks a question uh, is remdesivir still being used? in hospitals where you are uh, you know it's it was so uh, disappointing to me that i gave up working in the hospital at the beginning of last year but it, it was at that time and it it still is as far as i know i just don't like to uh, think about that and unfortunately the fda uh, gave eua for outpatient intravenous use of remdesivir if paxlovid wasn't uh, appropriate for a patient that there would be a three-day infu of infusions of remdesivir as an outpatient in the early phase of the viral infection. And 
uh, again, I, it's not a very effective antiviral from my, in my perspective, in my review of, of the studies of that agent. It's not highly specific for COVID-19, but that it is, it is still uh, uh, being recommended. I get patients that um, have been advised that they get this as their treatment as an outpatient, remdesivir intravenously. Uh, well, apologies. I'm uh, trying to fix a technical difficulty or trying to catch up with uh, Liam's fixing of a technical difficulty. Um, we're, we're streaming to uh, multiple platforms and we have a, a locals community now and we can stream directly to locals. I don't know if you're familiar with locals. I'm not. I'm not, but I'm glad to hear that. I... They, they're a group that combined with Rumble. The, the two companies are, are together under un, under one roof now. Oh, and really? it's important oh, because um, just yesterday, Rounding the Earth was banned and fully erased off of YouTube. Oh, is that right? Oh, yeah, wow. uh, we're, we're, we, we don't stick to their guidelines and we, we made the decision not to from the very beginning. So I thought you would be streamed there also, uh, but you were being streamed to Rumble and now uh, Locals, since Locals works with Lum, uh, Rumble, um, it's easy for us to to stream to both at once, and uh, and we'll also have this video on Odyssey and some other platforms. But um, well, is, is there anything else that you would like to add that is important for people to to know and be aware of? Or you know, like I, I brought up green tea simply because I want people to know that you know it's not hopeless to find an antiviral something or something that at least potentially has antiviral properties. I personally suspect you know a, a number of the um, spices in India and herbs in China that are often used um, that are believed to treat respiratory illness. My guess is that thousands of years of people, you know, observing and cultivating, you know, these particular agents that probably they, there are a number of, um, you know, uh, zinc ionophores among them, mm -hmm. or, you know, um, that may have properties that have other beneficial antiviral properties. But, you know, I, I thought it was important to say green tea because that's so commonly available to people. But is, is there anything like that or anything else at all that you would want uh, to share with uh, viewers um, in order to, you know, uh, help them understand the medicine, help keep them safe? You know, those are very worthwhile, what you've just mentioned, Matthew. I think the other uh, uh, approach for prevention and treatment that's proven very worthwhile are uh, locally provide, uh, use sprays, nasal and oral sprays or gargles with dilute uh, uh, betadine or uh, hydroxy, uh, hydrogen peroxide, hypochlorite. But the, uh, the, the Cofix RX is one example that's available on the internet, uh, which um, is a, an, a decontamination of the area that where, which is first impacted by, by respiratory viruses in the nasal pharynx. And it's, uh, uh, it, it can be incorporated along with the oral medications and the people should consider that, keep that in mind. And, uh, and it can be a very good preventive actually by um, doing a low, uh, decontamination in, if one is in an area where there may be exposure to a respiratory virus. And that's, those are sprays that are, uh, you, you spray them in the nostrils or in the, uh, or gargle and, and spit them out. You don't swallow the beta, the diluted betadine or the, the diluted um, hydro, uh, 
hypochloric uh, acid. Uh, and it's a, um, it's done three or four times a day during the acute infection. And that may be all they need, one needs to uh, overcome the infection without any protocol, oral agent protocol. Yeah, yeah. If, if rinsing keeps um, more virus from getting into the system while, while your body begins to handle it, um, this virus is so much weaker than most people think. Yeah. Now, even before it gets uh, into your uh, oral pharyngeal cavities, um, e even opening a window because uh, these RNA viruses are not, uh, UV light is not friendly for them. That's so, right. you know, yes. there, there are a number of things that can be done even long before the beginning of infection uh, occurs. So, um, uh, well, uh, George, I, I'm going to tell you this. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm a little bit inspired. I'm going to look up uh, 1995 Davis Cup final, and I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to see if I can find some videos. I bet I can. Uh, I can usually find that stuff. Uh, but that that's going to be what I queue up for uh, my time on the treadmill uh, this evening. Thank and you. In the workout room. <laughs> There's one photo of me picking Pete Sappers off up off of the red clay in Moscow with the, the trainer and, and, and carrying him literally off the court after he won the match. He went, fortunately, he, this is the first match against uh, Andrei Chesnikov and five set match. And he went into total body cramping and couldn't, couldn't have continued if he hadn't won. I, the I, I think I remember this. Uh, you know, I, I, I would not have known to, uh, I would not have known your face at the time, but I, I remember that moment. I I pretty much watched tennis right up until about the end of Sampras's career. Oh, really? Uh, um, I, the ones that were fun for me, Michael Chang was a lot of fun for me. Yeah. Andre Agassi was a lot of fun. His return game was just ridiculous. And Sampras's serve game was ridiculous. And that's why yeah. the, two of, the two of those guys um, dominated so much of that era. Um, that's right. <laughs> okay. Uh, if I can find the picture, I'll send it to you, Matthew. Wonderful. I'd appreciate that. I'll put it in one of my articles. Okay. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, George. Uh, we appreciate you. your time and, and all the work that you've done in the face of uh, taking a lot of fire and a lot of pressure. Um, but, you know, uh, you've helped so many people. Uh, you've probably saved, you know, hundreds or, you know, possibly thousands of lives beyond the influence of your immediate work. Um, so, you know, uh, thank you from uh, all the rounding the earth uh, viewers, uh, listeners and readers. Thank you for very much, Matthew, for all you've done. And it's uh, great to have you as a, as a good friend. Appreciate it. Thank you, George. Well, I'm going to, uh, I'll close things out now. Um, I'm, I'm peeking over to see if there are uh, any more questions or comments. There are a lot of thankful comments for, for Dr. George, but um, we'll wrap things up here and we'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.